it gives me great pleasure tonight to welcome back the Reverend William MacLeod, Minister of Portree, Free Church of Scotland, continuing. He's come all the way from Skye, came on Saturday and has spent much of the weekend with us, and it's great to have him back. Great pleasure to have you with us tonight, Mr. MacLeod. Mr. MacLeod is, of course, the minister of the church there in Portree. He's also currently moderator of the Free Church Continuing and principal of the Training College, too. And he's the editor of what I regard, and this will lose me all friends, what I regard as the best Christian magazine that we can have. That's the Free Church Witness, a monthly magazine, and Mr. MacLeod edits that. It's a very, very good, helpful Christian read. I recommend it to you. He's going to talk to us tonight about the role of kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament and our Lord Jesus Christ as our great redeemer. And tonight I've asked him if he will, first of all, read from the word of God and then move straight to talk to us about his theme tonight. So, without any more ado, I'm going to hand over to, to Mr. McLeod and we do bid you a warm welcome. Thank you, Mr. Byrne, for your warm welcome. I count it a great privilege to be here tonight, a great honour to speak at this meeting of the Christian Institute. We hold the Christian Institute in the very highest regard in our church in Scotland. We greatly appreciate the work that is done and we find it very helpful for ourselves and we wish to support it in every way we possibly can. Now, um, I would like to read first from the scriptures, from the book of Ruth and chapter 4. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. <clears throat> and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing 
for to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Killian's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephratah, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Phares, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife, and he went in unto her. When he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old age, for thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child, and laid it in her bosom, and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbours, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Phares. Phares begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. Amen, and may the Lord bless to us the reading of his own precious word. My subject tonight is the kinsman redeemer from the book of Ruth. Now in the Mosaic law, in the Old Testament, and the law that was given to Moses, the truths of the gospel are portrayed in pictures and symbols which we call types. For example, the sin offering. <coughs> when somebody sinned, they would come to the temple <coughs> with their offering. They would bring a sheep to the temple, a lamb, and they would place their hands upon the head of the animal 
and confess their sins. And then the animal died. It was sacrificed and laid upon the altar. And that was a type of Christ, a symbol, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ taking our sins and dying in our place. On the day of the Passover, a lamb was taken and killed, and its blood was sprinkled upon the doorposts and lintel of the house. And that again was a symbol of Christ (coughs) and the deliverance that we have through him. When the destroying angel went through the land of Egypt, destroying the firstborn in every house, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. And every house was safe, which was protected by the blood. And every one of us is safe if we are protected by the blood of Christ. Or the scapegoat, again, the sins of the people confessed unto the scapegoat, and the scapegoat taken into the wilderness, far away from the places where people lived, and it was let go, and it was never seen again. Again, a picture, a type of our sin being taken away and we never meeting it again. Or take the tabernacle, the temple. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build another. Destroy this temple. What did he mean? Well, he meant that the temple was a type of himself. Put me to death. Destroy me, and in three days I will raise up a new temple. I will rise from the dead, and I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amongst the many types that we have in the Old Testament, we have the kinsman redeemer. We're told about it. In Leviticus chapter 25 and verses 47 to 55. An Israelite became poor. Perhaps he'd had a bad harvest. Maybe he'd been a bit careless with his money. Perhaps he had invested foolishly. But somehow or other he found himself in debt. In these circumstances the law said he could, God's law said, He could sell his land. The land was the most precious thing the Israelites had. They were all farmers. He could sell his land to raise money to pay his debts. But if his debts were greater than that, he might have to sell himself and his family to be slaves to pay his debts. And then the kinsman redeemer came along. A kinsman, a relative. He would come along. He had the privilege and the duty, the obligation, in a way, and the privilege of being a redeemer to his poor kinsman. So this relative, this kinsman redeemer, would come along and would pay the debts, would buy back the land, would buy the freedom of the one who had sold himself into debt, into slavery, to pay the debt. The kinsman redeemer was a picture of Christ.
He is our great kinsman redeemer. And here in the book of Ruth, we have Boaz acting out the part of the kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ, symbolizing the Lord Jesus, our redeemer. Now, first of all, tonight, I want us to think about the one redeemed, then to think about the redeemer, and thirdly, our response to this redemption. So first of all, thinking about the one who was redeemed. Ruth the Moabitess. She was a foreigner, a Moabitess, unworthy. Salvation at that time was largely confined to the Jews. In God's purpose... Salvation was something like a tree. You know how with a tree you have the roots all spread out and then you have the trunk and then you have the branches spreading out. And the roots of salvation, as it were, and the purposes and plans of God in the early Old Testament, you find Christians belonging to every nation. Christians spread throughout the world, as it were. And then comes Abraham, called of God. And then Isaac and Jacob and the roots are coming together and you have this trunk and then the chosen people of God down through the Old Testament from the days of Abraham are the Israelites and salvation is of the Jews and largely confined to the Jewish nation. There were exceptions of course. We know that amongst those who were doomed for destruction when the Israelites came out of Egypt and entered the promised land, Canaan, the inhabitants of Canaan, were to be wiped out. But one individual was saved. Rahab the harlot. You remember how she had provided protection for the spies. She saved their lives and her life was saved. And although she was a Canaanite, she was one of the chosen. And she enjoyed salvation and she married into Israel. And indeed, she herself was one of the forerunners of Christ. In a sense, a mother of Christ. She was earlier in the line of Boaz. And then, of course, later on in the Old Testament, we come across the case of Naaman the Syrian, captain of the host of Syria. He was a leper. And he came to Israel for healing. And he was healed by Elisha. Go wash in the Jordan seven times and you will be clean. He didn't want to do it at first, but eventually was persuaded And his leprosy, this dreaded disease, was washed away by the power of God. And you remember when he came back, he wanted to worship God. And he wanted to take some of the earth of Israel so as that he could make a place for himself in Syria where he would worship God. Not only was he healed of his terrible disease, but he was saved by the grace of God. He was converted. So we had, down through the Old Testament, one or two 
cases of outsiders who just proved the rule that salvation at that time was for the Jews. But here we find another exception, Ruth the Moabites. Unworthy, outsider, foreigner, but God's grace reaches to her. The one redeemed, chosen by God, chosen in God's love, selected to live, chosen indeed to be a mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because as our chairman said, she was a great grandmother of King David. And David, of course, was a forerunner of Jesus, the son of David. So from the millions of Moabites, from the millions of Edomites, from the millions of Syrians, from the millions of Babylonians, from the millions of Egyptians, one was chosen, one was taken, one was saved. God's amazing grace. It should amaze us too that God has chosen us. When we look around us and when we see so many other people that God could have chosen, that God could have saved. People who are so clever, who are far more gifted, who are far better living than we are by nature. They've got so many things to commend them. And yet, God chose you and me. Amazing grace. How wonderful is God's grace, God's sovereign grace that reaches to us. And then we notice the amazing way in which she is brought to her redeemer, her kinsman redeemer. There was a famine in the land of Israel, but there was bread in Moab. Now that was strange in itself, but this was ordered by God. You know that Moab is east of the land of Israel. And the rain clouds would come from the Mediterranean, come eastwards. So these rain clouds would come over the land of Israel. And the rain was falling in Moab, but not in Israel. God was ordering things so that this woman from Moab would be brought to Israel and to salvation. In Bethlehem, lived a man by the name of Elimelech and his wife Naomi. And they had two sons, Malon and Kilian. In, their, in this time of famine, this time of need, they heard about the food that was in Moab, the bread there. And so they thought to themselves, the best way to survive the famine is to move house to Moab. And they went there. But shortly after they reached Moab, Disaster struck. First, Elimelech, the father of the household, became ill and died. The two boys got married to Moabite girls, Malin and Killian. They married Ruth and Orpah. But then Malin died, and Killian died. And poor Naomi was left on her own with her two daughters-in-law. 
Eventually, she decided that the best thing for her to do was to return home to Bethlehem. She tried to persuade her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. They wanted to come with her. And Orpah was persuaded. But you remember Ruth, she said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. Where thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. Tremendous words. Words that speak of God's grace at work in her life. She looks at her mother-in-law and she sees somebody whom you would say had such an unfortunate life. A woman whom tragedy after tragedy seems to follow. And yet, and yet, she sees behind these tragedies to God's grace in Naomi and she wants something of what Naomi has. She looks at her own people, her father, her mother, her friends, her neighbours, and she thinks how empty their lives are and their false religion and their false gods. And here's this woman, this widow woman from Israel, but she's got something. There's a joy in her life. There's a peace in her life. There's a purpose in her life. I want to have that for myself. Remember when Naomi returned eventually to Bethlehem, the people said, is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi, pleasantness, but call me Mara, for the Lord hath dealt bitterly with me. I went out full and I came back empty. Call me not pleasantness, call me not Naomi, but call me Mara, bitterness. For the Lord hath dealt bitterly with me. And yet, the grace of God was at work. And the day would come when Naomi would see that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called, according to his purpose. From Naomi's perspective, her life had been a disaster. But from God's perspective, there was purpose, there was meaning, there was blessing. Ruth, she looks, she sees in Naomi, she sees something. I wonder, do our Closest friends and relatives see something in us. Something of the beauty of the Lord. Something of the peace of God. Something of the joy of the Lord. So that even in the midst of times of illness and of sadness and of tragedy, they can see we've got something. We sure have something that's not natural. That's great. Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. I want to have what you have. I want to share in your blessings. Friends, we ought to be like that. Even in the midst of the trials and tragedies of life, shining forth the beauty of Christ, the grace of God, 
the blessing of Christ to those around us. God's way of leading Ruth to redemption, to the Redeemer. She sent Naomi and her family. And there were these tragedies. And Ruth's husband dies. And then Ruth returns with Naomi to Bethlehem. And Naomi says to her, she says, I want to go out and glean in the fields. It was harvest time. The poor were allowed to glean after the reapers. She does what she can. She wants to provide for her mother-in-law. She wants to work. She's not lazy. Some people take the verse, wait upon the Lord, as if it means do nothing, sit still. But God never says to us, do nothing and sit still. We always have a duty and a responsibility. There's always a work for us to do and to be up and doing for the Lord. And so she goes out to reap in the fields. And the Bible tells us her hap was to fall upon a field belonging to a kinsman of Naomi, Boaz. Her chance was to glean in Boaz's field. But was it chance? There's no such thing as chance. No such thing as luck. Good luck or bad luck. There's God's providence. God's wisdom. God's leading and guiding and directing and overruling. God led Ruth to the field of Boaz. It was God's loving purpose from all eternity. The God who, as Ephesians 1 says, worketh all things according to the counsel of his own will. And so she gleans in the field. And there Boaz notices her. And Boaz hears about her. And hears about how good she has been to her mother-in-law. Hears about her virtue. Hears praise of her and her love to Naomi. Boaz hears these things because God led him to hear these things. And Boaz meets her and is drawn towards her. And his affection is drawn towards her because, again, God is working in his heart. Eventually, at the end of the harvest, her mother-in-law tells her to go and meet Boaz one night as he's celebrating after the threshing of his corn to meet him. It was difficult to get an opportunity for her to talk to him on his own. This would be an opportunity when she could see him alone without anybody being around watching or listening and to ask him to be her kinsman redeemer. So she went that night, met with him and asked him to act as kinsman to her. And he agreed. So the one redeemed then, we see her, don't we? A Moabitess, a foreigner, unworthy, and yet 
amazingly guided and looked after and brought by God to this redemption. Now, secondly, I want us to think about the Redeemer himself, Boaz. He was a wealthy farmer. He could have had many a wife, no doubt, and at no cost. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In the form of God, the express image of God, the perfect representation of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. No, it wasn't robbery because he was equal with God in power and glory. Made himself of no reputation. Took upon himself the form of a servant. Humbled himself and was obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Our great Redeemer in heaven. The right hand of the majesty on high. And he makes himself of no reputation. Makes himself nothing. Makes himself a servant. In order to save. Boaz was a kinsman. A kinsman of Naomi. Or rather of Elimelech. Naomi's husband. Our Lord Jesus Christ is a kinsman too. How is he our kinsman? Through the eternal covenant of God. God gave us to him and he in that covenant became related to us. And more than that, he was made like unto his brethren so that he might save us. He took upon himself not the form of angels to save the devils, but the form of of men and women, made a little lower than the angels, that he, through tasting death for every man, that he should save his people. He became our kinsman, made like unto us. Behold I and the children whom God hath given me. It behoved him to be made like unto his brethren. Love formed in Boaz's heart. He had heard of the good qualities of Ruth. And God stirred up his affections towards Ruth. God had kept him up till that point from falling in love with anyone else. Because God had this purpose for him and for Ruth. It's a wonderful thing to be in the hands of God and to realize that our lives are planned for us by God. We sometimes get impatient and we wonder, why? Why is this not working out or that not working out? And we have to wait for God's timing because God knows what is best and his plan is always best. And so, love forms in his heart for this woman. She was a foreigner. She makes reference to this herself 
when she meets Boaz and she says, I'm not like unto one of your handmaidens here. I look different because of my foreign appearance. And there is a sense in which you and I are like that, isn't there? The church in the Song of Solomon says, I am black but comely. In and of ourselves we're black and ugly and filthy and horrible, but comely, but beautiful. How can we be beautiful? Not in and of ourselves, but the beauty that we have as Christians and the beauty that we have as the church of God, we have because he makes us beautiful. He makes us beautiful with the beauty of holiness. He gives to us loveliness in his own eyes. We get his righteousness imputed to us. What a blessing that is. You and I, sinners by nature and by practice, and yet God gives to us the perfect righteousness of Christ so that even God, the judge of all the earth, cannot condemn us because Christ's righteousness is perfect and Christ has died for our sins. He has suffered the penalty and the penalty cannot be imposed twice, twice over. When Christ suffers the penalty, those for whom he died are safe. Love forms in the heart of Boaz. He was not the nearest and kin, the nearest kinsman to Ruth. There was another one. And first of all, that other kinsman must have the opportunity to act as the kinsman redeemer. But that man, although he was prepared to buy the field and to provide the uh, redemption money for the field, was not prepared to fulfill all the obligations. He was not prepared to marry Ruth and to bring up um, to, 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 to remember the dead in the sense that the firstborn child of Ruth would be called after Malon um, and would raise up the name of Malon on his inheritance. But our Lord Jesus Christ, like Boaz, denies himself. He's prepared to give up his own rights. He's not concerned for his own name. He makes himself of no reputation, makes himself nothing, made himself nothing to save us. What a wonderful kinsman redeemer we have. And Boaz paid the price. He bought the land. And our saviour, our kinsman redeemer, pays the price for us. And we are redeemed not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. How wonderful it is. Boaz he paid some pounds, as it were, for the land and for Ruth and for her redemption. 
but our Saviour pays for our redemption with his own life blood. Gives the most precious thing he had. Gives his life for our redemption. Oh, what it cost Christ. Oh, that we would appreciate this. When we think of Calvary, was it easy for Christ to die on the cross? Was it easy for him to suffer the pains of hell upon the cross? When our Saviour cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was in agony. He was in darkness of soul. He was going through the bitterness of hell. It was not easy. But he did it because he loved us. And he cried out, from the cross of Calvary, it is finished. The cup that the Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And he drank every bitter drop that was in that cup, so that you and I would drink a cup of blessing, a cup of everlasting life, a cup of salvation. He took Ruth to be his wife. She was of heathen extraction, just like you and me, born in sin and shapen in iniquity. And yet, Boaz took her to be his wife. And the Lord Jesus Christ has taken us to be, as it were, his wife, married to him. We have our evil past, every one of us. At one time, children of wrath, even as others. And you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We lived in darkness, walked in darkness, till he saved us. Ruth was not a virgin either. She had been married before, and yet he took her to be his wife. And our Lord Jesus Christ takes us, who were married to the world, takes us to be his bride, his spouse. It was a blessed marriage that Boaz had. God blessed it. Ruth had been married before, but hadn't had children, but now God gives her conception. And a son is born. And all the neighbours round about rejoice and this child is born and they call it Obed, a son. And Obed, as we noticed, was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And our Lord Jesus Christ, he shall see his seed. He shall have children. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Going through, as it were, birth pangs. He can cry, Behold I and the children whom God hath given me. So we've looked then at the one redeemed, Ruth. And we've looked at the redeemer, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And now, 
finally, the response that we are to have to redemption. Ruth loved Boaz. She was very grateful to him. He had raised her from her low state. She was a servant, a poor servant gleaning in the fields. She had nothing. And Boaz made her wealthy, married her, took her into his home, made her wealthy. Ruth, in return, loved Boaz. You and I, by nature, spiritually, we're beggars. We're clinging to the dunghill, to the rubbish tip. God raised us from the gutter. How foolish to think that there's anything good in us, that there's anything to commend us to God. We're nothings. And anything we are, it's because God made us such. He took us up from the rubbish heap and he made us princes and princesses in his own kingdom. What a wonderful God we have. What a wonderful salvation. What a wonderful kinsman redeemer that takes us slaves of Satan and makes us into princes, sons and daughters of God. Boaz paid a little silver, as it were, for this redemption. But our Lord Jesus Christ paid with his life. Ruth, we believe, was a good wife to Boaz. She lovingly and dutifully served him as wife. When you and I, when we appreciate our kinsman redeemer, what is our response? Surely to love him in return. Do you love Christ? He says to us, if you love me, you keep my commandments. My commandments, all my commandments. And what are my commandments? My commandments I give you in my book, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This whole book was inspired by the Spirit of Christ. And it gives to us his commandments, bit by bit being revealed from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. The way we are to live. A light to our feet and a lamp to our path. If you love me, you keep my commandments. Not one jot or one tittle shall pass from this law till all be fulfilled. God doesn't change. And the God who revealed himself in the Old Testament and set out before people how they should live in Old Testament times, he continued to reveal himself, increasingly revealed himself, right on through the New Testament. 
and sets before us there the way, we, the way we are to live. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind and our neighbor as ourselves. We are to love everything that belongs to God. We are to love his Bible. We are to love his day. We are to love his church, his worship. We are to love his people. Even those that we find more difficult to love, we are duty-bound to love. No matter how they deal with us, no matter what they say about us, we are to love even our enemies. The response to redemption then, if you love me, you keep my commandments. You are not your own. Ruth was bought with a price. And you and I have been also bought with a price. We don't have rights over ourselves. Everything we have is his. Our heart is his. Our life is his. Our time is his. Our money is his. Our home is his. Everything, our family is his. We have been bought. We are bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has purchased us. And purchased us with his own blood. At such high cost. Remember, you're not your own. You belong to him. Let him rule your life. Let him be at the center of your heart. Ruth was bound in marriage to Boaz. She must not commit adultery. You and I are bound in marriage to Christ. We must not commit adultery from him. We must not go after other gods. We must not allow anything, a place in our hearts that equates with the place that he has. He must always have first place. First place. And we must love him more than we love our husband or our wife or our son or our daughter or our father or our mother. We must love him more than anyone else. More than our job. More than our money. More than our pleasures. We must not commit adultery. We must not let an idol into our hearts. The book of Malachi tells us that God hates divorce. There must be no breaking of this bond. God loves us with an everlasting love. And his love will never be broken. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Though we often let him down, though we grieve him in many ways, yet he remains faithful. And by God's grace, you and I are to strive to be faithful to him too. Eternally bound to him in his wonderful union 
this wonderful marriage relationship. There's a joyful end to the story. Call me not Naomi, pleasantness. Call me Mara, bitterness. For the Lord hath dealt bitterly with me. Oh no, Naomi. God is dealing lovingly with you. God always deals lovingly with his people. Sometimes he takes them through dark valleys. Sometimes he brings them through fire and water. But he brings them to a wealthy place. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou goest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. What a God we have. Naomi, the best is yet to be. All things are working for your good. And see her there with her friends and her neighbours gathered round. And Naomi bouncing this little baby upon her knees. What joy. What gladness. I went out full and came back empty. Oh no you didn't. You came back with someone who is better to you than seven sons. One whom God from all eternity has chosen to be a mother of our Lord, Ruth. There's a joyful end into the story and you and I, there's a joyful end to our story, isn't there? Songs of praise to him and to him that loved us and washed us in his blood out of all tribes and nations and tongues. Praise and glory be to him. We must tell others about him. We must witness and declare and set forth what a wonderful kinsman redeemer we have. Commend him to others. He can be your redeemer too. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your redeemer, turn to him tonight. Ask him. Seek him. Pray to him. And he will come into your life. He says, ask and you shall receive. And he assures us, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever, whoever you are. He offers to be your redeemer. Look to Christ, pray to him and be saved. Tell others about him and offer to them also this great kinsman redeemer. To be their redeemer. He is willing and he is able. Willing to receive all who come unto him. And him that cometh unto me, he says, I will in no wise cast out. I know it's very difficult to be in the first question. And I don't want to, to do that myself. But... If you've got a question, can you uh, just indicate? And we've got a microphone here, as you know, to pick it up. You talked of Christ made a little lower than the angels. And um, that passage in Hebrews uh, that um, has never been um, 
There's people who have different views on that passage. Is it, is it Hebrews 2? Uh, yes, Hebrews 2, verse 9. Question is being directed. The meaning of Hebrews 2? Yes, verses 6 to, to 9, really. Would you like to read the passage out? I'll ask Mr. McLeod to do it. Mr. McLeod, perhaps he could. We're working you very hard tonight, I'm sorry. Right. Uh, Hebrews 2, verses 6 to 9. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedst him with glory and honour, and didst set him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Became him who for whom are all things, by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now the first part of Hebrews is comparing Christ with the angels and setting Christ as superior to the angels. You get that in the first part of Hebrews, and then Christ as superior to Moses uh, in chapter 3, the great um, prophet of the Old Testament. And then later on, Christ as superior to Aaron and uh, the priests um, again. So in this passage, it's talking about Christ and the angels. Now, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. So man is a little lower than the angels. Uh, the angels were created also in the image of God. They are spirits, pure spirits. But man is spirit and body. And in our spirits and our souls we're in the image of God. And then we have bodies as well. And in the order of things, man is a little lower than the angels. So Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. He was made a man in order to save mankind. There's no salvation for devils. Devils are fallen angels. There's no salvation for them. But there's salvation for mankind. He was made a little lower than the angels through the suffering of death. And then, having risen from the dead... He is exalted, wherefore God gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's raised to highest heaven at his resurrection. God's people, a little lower than the angels, but we too will be raised. And we will be raised with Christ, to sit with Christ, and to judge angels, even to judge angels. So there is a sense in which 
God's people are raised to a higher state than the angels in heaven. Now, I'm not sure if I answered what you... Thank you. Yeah, good. Yes, Mr. Judge. Thank you, Mr. Byrne. Um, You gave a very helpful picture of um, God's dealings with mankind as a tree, with a narrowing of the focus of the call of Abraham. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just interested, in terms of um, God's redemptive purposes, why that narrowing of focus for a time and then a broadening out again? Did you pick the question up? Yeah. Remember I'd spoken about um, God's redemptive purposes as being like a tree, the roots, at the beginning in the days of um, the early days of Genesis and uh, the time of Noah when um, uh, mankind in general, salvation was to be found amongst them. And then there's this narrowing um, in the time of Abraham. I believe that the reason for the narrowing, and of course there's, there's always mystery in God's purposes, but the reason for the narrowing was in order to teach, um, to teach us various lessons, types and symbols and so on. This was part of God's teaching process and um, gradually revealing himself. Now, through this narrowing, God was teaching his election. God was teaching how his church had to be a holy nation, a peculiar people, a different people set apart for God. So, and then there was God's special dealings with this nation at Sinai and, you know, the the worship that was involved. So, um, there was a revelation of God and of God's purposes and God saw this as the best way to reveal his purposes down through Old Testament times. Uh, you know, there was the the general um, polytheism, um, idolatry throughout the whole world. And then God keeping his people pure and clean and separate. And then as we in New Testament times, we look back and we see how God's people are to be different, to be set apart from the rest of the world and stand out as a special nation for, for him. And then all the various parts of the types and symbols and ceremonial worship and so on. All these things um, in themselves revealing God's purposes. And um, the the scriptures themselves were revealed over a a long period of time. And these scriptures required um, great input from God, as it were, to ensure that all these truths that we need today would be revealed to us. So I think it was part of God's um, revelation of himself. God chose to redeem himself, uh, to, to reveal himself um, bit by bit to mankind through the history of redemption. In, in Ruth, we read about um, the uncovering of the feet, um, and we can sort of infer from the, the context what that means. Do we know anything about the sort of cultural significance of it and, and what that that really meant the uncovering of the feet. The uncovering of the feet. Yeah, bad, yeah. What's the significance of that? Yeah. Yeah. It does seem a bit strange. It seems very forward on Ruth's part and rather dangerous in a sort of way, in a moral way, that Ruth comes to Boaz in the 
um, you know, in the middle of the night, well, she, she notes where he, where he um, uh, sleeps, and then she uncovers his coat, as it were, and spreads it over herself very quietly, and then, you know, remains silently there till midnight, when suddenly he turns in his sleep, and he realizes there's somebody there. And it seems very mysterious, but I think really... Um, there was certainly the symbolism of spread your cloak, spread your skirt over me in the sense of, you know, remember who you are. You are my um, kinsman and you have a duty towards me. I think really what we have there is um, the difficulty of Ruth being able to find an opportunity uh, to, to meet Boaz on his own and to speak to him um, about these things and to call upon him to, to, to act towards her in a protective way and in a, a, a loving way as the, um, the kinsman redeemer. And it's rather interesting that the first thing that um, Boaz says to Ruth, more or less, is on that, on that occasion, we all know that you are a virtuous woman. He mentions that. So, um, it's not taken as if there was anything sort of immoral. She could trust him. This, he, he was a man who was obviously very highly thought of. He was a mature and sensible man. She felt she could trust him and come to him um, for help and for deliverance. So I would just simply take it in that way. And she's asking him now to, um, to reach to him uh, as her kinsman and deliver her. My question is, um, I'm very interested in history, and um, I just want to know, is uh, Moab, is it now Jordan? And um, the, I'm interested in the culture that they had at those days, because obviously Ruth had to give up an awful lot. And I'm just wondering if you would give me a bit of historical background, please. A little bit about Moab, it's history and Culture, yeah. is that right? Yeah. And what was it that Israel as well? Yeah. Um, Moab was, yes, to the east of um, Israel, so it would be what we call Jordan nowadays, that area. Um, the, um, the Moabites were um, related to the Israelites in a way, in that they were descendants of Lot, who was um, uh, Abraham's nephew, um, Lot had two sons, um, uh, Moab and Ammon, and uh, Ammon was further north, I think, than um, Moab. So, but towards the to the east of Israel, so in that Jordan area, um, I would tend to think that the culture, um, life would be very much the same in Moab as it was in Israel. But, uh, of course, the Moabites, they worshipped false gods, idols. Um, uh, Chemosh, particularly, was the god of Moab. Um, so the Moabites worshipped idols, but uh, their general life, their, um, their way of life would be very similar, living off the ground, and uh, they would be um, you know, farmers and so on. So their lives would be similar, but dominated by um, idolatry and a very much lower 
um, morality, I would reckon, than would be found amongst the Israelites because of um, Israel's great privileges having the, the law and the prophets, the teaching of God. I want to first uh, begin by uh, saying that I was very impressed with the message. Uh, I'm from a Pentecostal background, and um, that was as good as any message I've ever heard on Christ and uh, who we were. I like the phrase, slaves of Satan, no sons and daughters of God. But uh, just there was a thought that was triggered uh, from our brother here who talked about how Christ become a little lower than the angels. And uh, one point uh, Mr. McLeod mentioned was that um, we're created in the image of God. It's just a question that always has intrigued me, and I've always thought about this. And it might sound like a simple question. I might have a simple answer. <laughs> Hopefully. Simple question, but, yeah, but we, we, we're created in the image of God, uh, obviously in spirit and soul. Uh, but I've thought about this because uh, there's been times in the Bible how uh, God would manifest himself. And for instance, Isaiah, uh, when uh, King Isaiah died, and he says in the image of Christ, which is before he was, uh, he came to earth. Uh, he sees a king, and um, there's, uh, you know, the time when Joshua is led, leading the army, and he meets the, you know, the, the horse, captain the captain, the and, uh, yeah. and to, uh, people, you know, the, the, the thought is that this is Christ, a manifestation of Christ, and there's, there's other instances in the Bible before Christ ever came to earth, he already had the form of a man, whether it was manifest on the earth or whether he was a revelation in heaven, uh, people always saw the form of a man which has always intrigued me. And then we go into the book of Revelation, yeah. Yeah. and we see Christ again, you know, in detail, uh, depicted as being in the form of a man again. And so my thought was that being created in the image of God, obviously in spirit, you know, God's got emotions, there's the character of God, and we've, we've got all that. But uh, is it just coincidence that God created us the way we are, or is this literally a representation of who Christ was before he came to earth and who he will be forever. Have you got the question? Yep, I think so. <laughs> yes. Therefore, could I ask you to summarize it first and then answer it, please? All right. That's maybe a little bit more difficult. But, um, yes, the question is about the image of God. What is the image of God in man? But also noting that um, Christ appeared in the Old Testament in the form of a man. So is there some connection between that and the image of God, or even our bodily shape, almost, and the image of God. Now, I would say that essentially, as far as the image of God is concerned, you've got a sort of central core of that image, and you've got something a bit broader, maybe something broader still. But the, the central core of the image of God and man is revealed to us in Ephesians and um, Colossians, where it says renewed in the image of God in knowledge and righteousness and true holiness. So um, the image of God essentially, first and foremost, is knowledge, righteousness and holiness because when we are converted, we are renewed in the image of God and it's said renewed in the image of God in true holiness and in, you know, in knowledge and righteousness. So... Um, Knowledge, knowledge of God, um, righteousness, right standing with God, holiness, um, positive holiness. Now, that's the sort of inner core of the image, as it were, the most essential part of it. Then you get an outer 
sort of sphere, as it were. And there, there's things like our rationality, our ability to think and to reason, our conscience, our ability to uh, logic, a language, for example, um, uh, memory, and uh, you know these things which distinguish us from the animals, the the intelligence and the thought processes and our religious consciousness and things of that nature that distinguish us from the animals. That's part of the image. Now, what about our bodies? Well, the problem we have there is that God is a spirit and, you know, he doesn't have a body. So what about then Christ's body in the Old Testament? Well, I think the best way to view that is as some of the old divines used to say, it was Christ trying on his humanity before he came into this world, as it were. You know, um, what you had there was Christ, um, he was going, uh, you know, to become incarnate and to be born and to become a man like us with a human body. Um, In the Old Testament, he, as it were, tries it on more or less, or he appears in that form in order to communicate uh, quite a number of times. You know, you get him in the, in the form of a man. Uh, I think there's something there. It's sometimes argued, and there's possibly a little bit in it, that um, amongst the animals, man is distinctive in that he walks upright and he looks upward, whereas all the other animals look downward down to the ground and so on. But man looks up. God has created him upright. So there are possibly things you could say about about the human body and so on that, you know, particularly adapted to be the body of someone made in the image of God. I would say that. But I think, but essentially, the image of God and man would be those things which distinguish us from the animals and in which we are like God, who is a spirit, First and foremost, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, but also things like um, morality, language, reasoning powers, logic, these sort of things. These things distinguish us as like our maker. Early on, um, someone asked me the question. Uh, We've been thinking about, uh, the past few weeks, Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and how... his role as our redeemer fits into his offices and uh, how they they tie in together and um, as I say I I wasn't quite sure so I wonder whether you might be able to help me a little does that make sense the question it does a difficult question a difficult question yeah could you summarise it again please for us uh, we generally think of Christ as the mediator and Christ, in his mediatorial role, is having three offices. The offices of prophet, he's the great teacher. The office of priest, he is the one who offers the sacrifice for us that makes peace between us and God. And he makes intercession for us, continual intercession at God's right hand. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And then as king, he is um, the one who subdues us to himself, breaks down the rebellion in our hearts, 
and he is the one who rules over us, rules and defends us, and he overthrows our enemies, and he will bring us to heaven to rule over us forever. So how does Christ the Redeemer fit in with the offices of prophet, priest, and king? Now, I would say um, primarily the office of priest. You think of the redemption. What is the redemption? The redemption is paying the price to set us free. And he paid the price as the priest when he offered his body a sacrifice on Calvary's cross, when he gave his blood. So, it's primarily there we see him um, in his priestly work buying our freedom. Um, I suppose you could also see him in his kingly role to some extent, um, subduing us to himself, drawing us to himself, marrying us to himself, and taking us to live with himself in his palace forevermore. Um, there is a, a sense there, the redemption, the, the final completion of redemption. And also as the Redeemer, he is our teacher, showing us the way of life and the way of salvation. He is the prophet too. So um, as Redeemer, you can see him as, as the one who's teaching us the way we should we should live in the way we should trust in him and follow him. And uh, as priest, especially, buying our salvation uh, with his blood, with his offering, and as king, drawing us to himself, looking after us and protecting us as the great husband king.